Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, and today we have Kirsty Miles, who is with me, of course. She's the Vice President here at Pediatric Developmental Therapy, and we also welcome Bill Ogletree. Bill is the Catherine Brewer-Smith Distinguished Professor of the Communication Science and Disorder Department at Western Carolina University. He's also the Department Chair. First off, welcome, Bill. Thank you. Glad to be here. Bill is also my professor from a long time ago. I don't really want to say how long, because that really dates you and I, Bill, so let's just not. <laughs> a long time ago at Western Carolina. And honestly, I can say this. I use things that Bill taught me daily in my practice. Not not kidding as a speech therapist. Truly, he has been impactful in my career. And so I appreciate it. And I'm very excited to talk to you today. Oh, we're, I'm glad to be here and glad to be a part of the podcast. You know, Kirsty, um, you know, I love a wind-up toy, but do you know who introduced me to wind-up toys back in the day? I'm guessing <laughs> Bill. Bill, I'm going to tell you what, I don't know that I've done a speech therapy session without a wind-up toy in 20 plus years. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that every CF or anybody that's come in contact and done therapy with Hayden has heard about a wind-up toy. I, I'm not kidding. I'm actually a wind-up toy snob. You know, on another day, we could talk about the use of uh, things like that for non-standardized assessment. In fact, a colleague here Johanna Price and I just wrote an article about that, but that's not what we're here to talk about. No, it's not, but that is another (laughs) podcast, so stay tuned, people. But really, I'm all about what we're talking about today. Today, we are talking about co-treats, and specifically, you know, uh, Bill has written an article. Here's the big, long title. It's called Co-Treatment as a Vehicle for Interprofessional Collaboration Practice, Physical Therapists and Speech-Language Pathologists Collaborating in the Care of Children with Severe Disabilities. Now, I'm reading that, but that's the name of the title. So I read that, and I was like, ho, buddy co-treat PT speech, like I'm there, I'm sold. So I was intrigued. I talked to Kirsty about it. She was like, oh yeah, that's totally up our alley. So we really want to talk to you. So Bill, tell us a little bit about why did you write the article, how it came about, what made you interested in this and why did you write it? Well, uh, as you said, Hayden, I've always had an interest in team-based practice. And if I go back my early days as a speech pathologist and my best experiences were experiences on teams. And that involved both assessment and intervention. Increasingly, you know, I got involved with co-treatment uh, with especially PTs and OTs. And so it's always been a part of kind of who I am professionally. And then about four years ago, I'm involved with a group called the National Joint Committee for the Communication Needs of People with disabilities. And our group was invited to do uh, an an e-conference for ASHA, and it was on interprofessional practice. And uh, so several of us got together and put a presentation together. I think that's still available to your listeners if they want to go to the ASHA store. If they go to the ASHA store, what is it called? If you go to the ASHA store, it would just be under the National Joint Committee's uh, products, which would include Uh, It's an interprofessional conference on severe disabilities. So that conference gave rise to a special edition of HSLP, which is uh, the journal that this paper came out in. And so a lot of the participants in the conference were invited to put together an issue of clinical practice. And uh, in that process, 
one of the papers ended up being about co-treatment, and uh, I wrote it with two other physical therapists, Karen Lunnan, who was um, a faculty member here and has since retired, uh, and then uh, Lori is uh, my other person that uh, was out still at the University of Oklahoma, Lori Sylvester, and she um, is an active physical therapist involved with a lot of guys with severe. So we wrote it together and uh, thought about the applications, and, and uh, hopefully it's helpful. A lot of times, I think just as in the world out there, people sometimes don't think about physical therapists and speech therapists uh, collaborating, working together. But Kirsty and I have worked together for years as PT and ST, but I think it just makes sense. I don't know how to not do it. I just think PT and speech working together makes sense as a collaborative therapy. But why did you guys choose PT and speech? Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. First of all, people with severe disabilities, and especially children, have such uh, multiple and complex issues going on uh, that, you know, we really need more heads in the solution, you know, especially with treatment. And, and so I found, and I'm sure that Kirsty and you have found as well, that uh, when kids move, they tend to be more communicative and more vocal and attempt to do more interactively. So it just seemed like a natural, it has been, I think, historically a natural pairing, physical therapy and speech pathology. Although I'll tell you that if you go back in the literature, you don't find a whole lot written about it. No, you don't. And I think that we ought to change that. We, we got to be a part of changing that. But I think it's a natural thing that happens. And so this was an example that uh, we put together, you know, in terms of the article and what's uh, presented in it, where we could kind of showcase what could happen with two pretty engaged folks. One, again, a physical therapist, one a speech pathologist. So it's kind of a, it's intended to be kind of a recommended practice uh, article, although everything isn't perfect. And I think sometimes, you know, if you're in the speech language pathologist working in the school setting, PT comes in and out. I always say they fly underneath the radar because they are kind of in and out of all the various schools. So you have to really sometimes hunt for them. And you're so busy with a caseload of 50 kids that you don't have time to hunt for anybody. But I think just calling attention to this is a good co-treat. And then I think sometimes, too, usually if you're like in a rehab situation or a therapy type of private practice, the gym and the speech rooms can be very different. They're all like on different sides of the building, right. you know. And so I think you have to be very deliberate in finding the PTs to work with as a speech therapist and also vice versa. Right. I agree with you. But I think it should happen all the time. And I also think sometimes as speech therapists, we don't go to the gym to work. Yeah. You know, we don't think of being on the swing, being on the climbing wall, being in the ball pit. But we can be, should be. Movement, uh you know, kind of, like I said, tends to go hand in hand with communication. So mm -hmm. It's funny. I can't tell you how many times, like through the history of treating where I might have a child and I know this article specifically talks about severe disabilities, but I work with a child in the gym and I take him down to speech because speech wants to see him next. I'm like, oh, he said up, he said ball, he said more. <laughs> and then I, they come out of speech and they're like, well, he didn't say anything for me. I'm like, yeah, movement. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really helps. <laughs> it does help. It helps a lot. Can we cover some basics? Like the article goes into the interprofessional mm -hmm. collaborative practice. That's like the right. whole focus of your article. And we as a practice that does hire new grads just into the field, sometimes their definition oh, yeah. of collaborative practice is, well, <laughs> I emailed that therapist about that child. Mm -hmm. Right, like, right. You know, just to talk a little bit about what is uh, – IPCP and, you know, kind of how it differs from interprofessional education. Interprofessionality is a, is an ideal has been around for decades. And, you know, a lot's been written about it. It's been seen as kind of recommended practice. But again, a lot of research hadn't occurred, uh, you know, in the area. And only recently, probably the last 10 or 15 years, have we begun to make a commitment to professional education in the university setting. So where somebody like uh, Kirstie might actually 
attend a class with somebody like me as a speech pathologist or Hayden, and we would kind of learn together, or we would have clinical experiences together. And I think the reason we haven't done education that way is because we're pretty siloed, you know, and we're all worried about accreditation and what we have to teach and what uh, students have to learn. We're moving more that way. And as we've moved more that way, um, I think we're beginning to see more people come out of graduate school a little more prepared to do interprofessional collaborative practice. And what that is, is really the expression of interprofessionalism in your daily work. And so it's really a commitment to communicating, to working together, to being a team uh, in the best interest of uh, the client and their families and stakeholders. So, uh, you know, when we think about it, what we used to do, and when I was, you know, and I'm older than both of you guys, and, you know, I did my graduate work back in the Stone Age, but when we got out of school, we were pretty much thrown into those situations, and we really didn't have any idea. And I was fortunate to be thrown into a practice at a UAP, University Affiliate Program in Kansas, where lots of disciplines were there. We worked together. And so I got to learn on the spot, you know, And but a lot of people don't have that. So a lot of students coming out of grad school, especially those that have been out for a little while, haven't been that prepared to be an interprofessional collaborative team member. And that's changing. So I think hopefully, uh, Kirstie, you said that a lot of students that are coming out just taking a job, think collaborations, you know, calling someone on the phone or sharing an email. It's much more than that. It's much more important. Coordinated uh, efforts together. And I think you'll begin to see more and more speech pathologists with that orientation. I hope so. Well, and I think also, like you said, just introducing and the concepts in graduate school and making people aware of the bigger picture and the opportunities for that. But because I think at first when you get out, you're so worried about how just to do the speech therapy thing or OT thing or yeah. PT thing that you can't exactly. even lift your head to sort of think about anybody else. You're like, I just got to figure out how just to do this. Well, you know, about nine months to 12 months in as a new grad, new therapist, you're new to the profession, but you at that point still like, okay, I can write these goals. I can do this. About, I got the basics here. So now you can start to lift your head up. And then I think also then the things that you did learn in graduate school and the people taught you then can sort of start to kind of seat back in and then you can sort of take a collective breath and start working in that direction. But at first it is hard sure. to think of that way. Yeah. 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 It is a so when you're talking about that interprofessional model, you also go in to describe the differences between you have multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary, right. interdisciplinary. Could you kind of describe the differences between yeah. those? Yeah, that's a good starting point. I, I think where a lot of us are very comfortable with a medical model, and that's traditionally a multidisciplinary model. A medical model is where professionals come at a clinical situations somewhat independently. And so if you go to a major medical center, you might be seen by three or four physicians, and uh, they pretty much don't talk to each other, um, but they see you independently, and you often answer the same questions, and you might be get you know get pretty tired at the end of the day. And that's kind of that team. So it's not really known for its collaboration. Also, a multidisciplinary team would be one that had a pretty authoritative team leader. So somebody manages uh, the team in terms of who's on the team with a pretty authoritative hand. And family members typically aren't part of the team. They're more part of the either the patient being evaluated or it's that person's uh, group of support uh, individuals or stakeholders. If you go to an interdisciplinary team, it's when you begin to have some collaboration. So again, we are all evaluating a child or an adult and and coming at it from our perspective. So as a speech pathologist, Hayden or I would be looking at communication issues. And as a PT, Kirstie would be looking at, you know, 
gross motor issues. And, and uh, if we had an OT involved, maybe they'd be looking at, uh, you know, fine motor or, or, or the adaptive kind of issues and so on and so on. The issue there is that we take our own little slice, but we do collaborate. And the best example of that kind of team would be when I was at the University of Kansas, I was on an autism team and I had a psychologist who we did a lot of the same things in our assessment protocol. So if they saw the person first, they'd call me and say, Bill, you don't need to have them do these things. I have that. I've already have data there. You don't need to have them stack blocks or whatever. Or I would go and watch their assessment. So I had the data, you know, in front of me and I, I saw them. Uh, so we were sharing and collaborating as we conducted our assessment time. An interdisciplinary team is going to have more of a case coordinator. A team leader is, is less authoritative. And then finally, you have that transdisciplinary team. And that's the team where you release your roles. And usually it's done with infants and toddlers and sometimes with guys with severe disabilities. And you may have one person who conducts much of the assessment and uh, the other team members, you know, might be in an arena format. So if Kirsty was in the middle working with a child and I might say, have them stack blocks, or I might say, wind up that toy that Hayden likes so much, you know? So, so as we're doing that, we're, we're being more efficient. We're collaborating on the spot. And, and at that point, we have stakeholders, really those last two models, both interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary, have stakeholders more as a part of the team rather than as in the middle of the circle and being assessed. So uh, I guess if you look at it over a progression from multidisciplinary to transdisciplinary, you get more and more collaboration as you go. Okay, and what you give up maybe is a little bit of efficiency so that multidisciplinary team is going to be more efficient in terms of time spent. Uh, but I think you get more from the other two. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're talking about the evaluative model. In reading about your, your ICF, versus, can I say HOAC? HOAC too, yeah. Yeah. When you're talking about those two models, speech therapy tends to go more with that ICF model where you're collecting the data and performing the tests and measures and then developing the goal plan. I don't know that I think that I follow the HOAC, but when I'm reading what you have written here, I collect data. I already have an idea of my goals before I collect testing. So I guess PTs, like you're saying in your article, it does kind of fit. Yeah, and I think PTs, and again, uh, you have to remember now, two PTs wrote this with me, so they're, they're going to be more knowledgeable about those mm-hmm. two models as they relate to PT. But I think that HOAC2 model is one that uh, really allows you to do some hypothesis testing mm-hmm. uh, as you're getting ready to pursue your treatment. Uh, and, you know, so if you see make these kind of observations, which are more consistent with the ICF as a model, uh, so I see certain things about body function or structure, activity, participation, those things, then what I would do with uh, HOAC2 is I'm going to begin to make some some predictive assumptions and and work from those. And so, yeah, I think we, you know, I think we all do that. You know, it's just a framework. And and these are the kind of things, Kirsty, that we get to share if we work together. So if you're working with me and and maybe I haven't done a lot of predictive stuff in the past, and even though you don't know that you learned that as OAC too, but uh, you kind of have incorporated that into your practice as I watch you do it, then I can do it too. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, this is just the benefit of co-treatment, I think. Yeah. And I think Hayden and I do that a lot now naturally together as well. But I think it's a learned thing. I mean, I think working with Kirsty and working with PTs, if I speak to functional application for just a moment, like in real time, that, you know, okay, so what are you concerned about? Why, basically they ask the question of the family, you know, why are you here? What is it that they can do and can't do? Speech therapists, we do, but we sometimes, we sort of get there at the end, you know, but I've changed my approach a little bit so that I ask a little bit more questions about kind of why are you here, but, you know, a little more professionally than that. And sort of framed it differently. Yeah, my guess is you've done that because you've, again, began to work on Mm -hmm. teams and you saw that, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that you learned to do it, though may work for your profession, it may not be the 
ideal way in every situation so you can learn from Kirstie, you can learn from someone else, you know, on your team. One of the things that for sure with this is it makes it more efficient, which PTs tend to be, as speech therapists, we're efficient, but that's a very efficient group over there, those PTs. Okay, so then. Well, I think that leads us into the, like, you learn so much from your other disciplines. Mm -hmm. And so even though when we're working with a child, so we get into the term co-treatment, it's because it benefits that child, but there's professional benefits to doing it too. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I think that's true. And probably the best example of that for me, and, and again, this is a little bit from an assessment perspective, it certainly would be a treatment one as well. But again, when I was at Kansas, I, I didn't feel as prepared in things like reflexes. And, you know, I, I didn't understand those as well as I could have. And, and uh, I remember the PT there just took me through that and used the language with me and showed me illustrations and then would show me on, on kids and Gosh, that was just, uh, you know, on the spot learning, you know, and at the same time, I might share with that individual about uh, intentionality, like what is communicative intent and, you know, what, how might a behavior that a child uses uh, actually serve a communicative purpose. And, and if I found that a lot of other professions really, you know, to them, communication is speech. Well, you know, communication is much more than that. So, again, we all have things we can share. The more we're willing to share it, uh, the better we are at the end point, you know, once we've done the treatment. So. Mm-hmm. Exactly. When you talk about the whole thing in the article, the melding of PT and speech practices and, you know, like it kind of speaks to that too, like broader understanding. And you talk about that in the article. Mm-hmm. Getting into some of the examples uh, are helpful at this point. Mm-hmm. Sure. Because when you start diving into the patient examples that you use in your article, um, mm-hmm. the first one that we come across is you have a child that would benefit from a co-treatment, but maybe a parent's like, wait a second, no, no, I want my speech separate from my PT. I want them to get 30 minutes of speech and I want them to get an hour of PT and I don't want you to overlap it and combine it because more is better. And why is that? <laughs> why do you think that is? Yeah, more is better. I, I think we, you know, we sell that. And, and you know, that's a, that's a vestige of that kind of medical model that we've uh, adopted forever and that we do think that when we have more of a service or just more more time logged uh, individually that that somehow in aggregate is better than collective effort. So that is that was intended in the case to illustrate just a, an issue that you may have to deal with. And you know and when you when you embrace co-treatment, you'll probably have some people that'll question you and they'll wonder, you know, what are you doing and why is that, uh, you know, a benefit to the child or how is it a benefit to the child? And you have to just kind of be ready to, to answer it. And I think the answer to that is, you know, time together, it's two hits better than one. And, and frankly, if I'm teaching you and you're teaching me as the two professionals involved, then the next time we do see the child, the next time I see Mike in the case in the, in the article, then I'm going to position him correctly and I'm going to, you know, do the kind of things that I've seen you talk about and I've seen you do if I'm with him by myself. And so the next time you're with him, well, you're going to provide a communication opportunity. You're going to make sure his device is present or whatever, if, you know, in that case. So, yeah, I think those are all things we just, we learn from each other. And the, the more we do it together, the more we actually will be more like a, you know, a, a collective, uh, altogether super professional when we're apart. So... <laughs> Well, and I think it also requires you to be intentional as a therapist who's in a co-treat. You have to be very intentional about what you're doing and also then be able to explain to the parent, you know, explain, okay, this is why I'm doing it, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So it really makes you think about what you're doing and why. I was going to ask Hayden, like, we do hear this a lot from parents, Mm -hmm. like, no, I want my services separate. So is there any language maybe you could offer to somebody listening for how would you phrase it to a parent? 
Well, I think you have to begin to talk about with the parent about uh, what the child's needs are and that the child's needs really aren't in isolation. So if a child has, uh, you know, needs that are related to movement, uh, fine or gross motor, those kinds of behaviors don't occur in isolation. And so for us to work on them in isolation kind of is counter to the way that we use our skills. And when I walk, I talk. When I move, I communicate in other ways. And so, you know, if I were uh, someone trying to explain it to a parent, I think I would say that, you know, basically working together is more socially valid than, uh, and that means more real world, more applicable, more transferable in terms of skill sets than it is working separately. And and again, we just have to kind of combat what's been a historical model uh, for us. And, and, and we've always believed more is better. And, you know, frankly, I think you could make the argument that more can occur in a collective session than might occur in two independent ones. Yes, absolutely. I think also the same thing for the avows. I mean, I think you can get more out of interdisciplinary evaluation, but that's really a hard sell. And it does require therapists to really think outside the box, but you can get great information from a co-evaluation or interdisciplinary eval. It also sets you up to write the goals as a team. So you all sort of support one another in those goals. Yeah, exactly. So Bill and Kirsty, this conversation is fantastic. Let's pause right here and we'll continue our discussion and get more information about co-treats between speech and physical and occupational therapist. So thanks everybody for listening. And you can check out this information that we've talked about on the podcast, the article that Bill wrote on theworkingtherapist.com. Please join us again for part two and we'll pick it up next time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com.